0: All right, so here we are now in our passage today. It is Romans chapter 9. Just some of my normal starting information. Um, Our our teaching style here is that we teach straight through books. Um, It's called expositional teaching. It's really helpful to us because we just stay on what God said, not just skipping around and taking the things we like, and skipping over hard things, and that kind of stuff, which which is a mess. So, allows us just to track along. We've been going through Romans now for a year, um it's been quite the journey because romans is one of the heaviest duty books in the bible um i, I was jokingly cl- talking to somebody this week i feel like i said um i'm i'm 49 this year and i've been doing like ministry for 25 years and i was saying like i've always been nervous about going to romans because romans is an old man's book um it's got heavy stuff and it's not it's not something that you like hop out of bible college or seminary and like oh sweet let's say romans like uh, just tackle the smaller books for a couple decades, right? Just kind of go off around that because there are some really hard and challenging things, really good things said in here, but there's uh, details to it. So I've always been, um, I think, really respectfully nervous about going into Romans. And uh, as we've gone through Romans, I totally still feel that way. Um, it's a fantastic book. It has uh, been such a, a helpful and challenging thing to study and to all the parts that we do. So I'm very thankful to be in there. We are in nine. 8 is this midway through Romans, and 8 is this, this island in the middle of Romans talking about what it means, the amazing truth of what it means to be loved by God. Not like as in where God so loves the world that he sends, he sends his son to the whole world. He's shown love the whole world by sending his son. But Romans 8 is talking about that specific covenant love wh- that you get when you come to God and say, all right, I'm listening to what you say. I'm obviously in a world of trouble. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. But you said I can have you if I put my faith in you. And God in that says he adopts us and he, and he makes us his own. We'll hit this all in this passage today. It's this, and then he describes it. That love is so unlike the love your grandma would give you. Is so unlike the love that your friend would give you. So unlike the love that your spouse or proposed spouse would give you. Any of the constructs in the world where we see love or, and, and we, love, we love the instances of love and the initial shapes of it, but it supersedes all of that. And so Romans 8 is just the unfolding of all of this love and all the consequences. And then in 9, because it really is a complex treatment where God is, more clearly than anywhere in the New Testament or Old Testament combined, is explained to us how this whole thing works in the whole Bible, he jumps back into some rather complex arguments, which is just a, really an honor for us as we little humans with two legs that live about 80 years. It's an amazing honor for us to be led into the inside workings of what he's doing. And because we're listening to what he says, in the Old Testament, he says, hey, I made this people called Israel. They weren't a worthy people. I've, I've created them. I have spoken to them. I have I will send the Messiah to them. But it makes this people. These recipients of this book, which are in Rome, that's why it's called Romans, um, Paul is saying, yeah, it's a good question about what do we do with those people because you guys are Romans. You aren't Jewish people. Is it legitimate for you to be in on this deal? In Romans 9 is the argument where Paul is saying, Listen, God's word is true. Is God's word did not fail. It's always been in God's plan to do this great work, not by genetics, not by birthright, not by merit, but by m- him going through humanity and saving people from every trung- tongue and tribe and nation. He explained it really detailed all the way through verse 24 about how he has complete power and control working all through this. And so in verse 25, it's, it's a moment of tenderness where the Spirit, through Paul, grabs you, you little Gentile, by the cheeks, and holds you and says, you belong. You belong. Now, some of you guys might be Jewish folks, too. You belong, too. But in this text here, it's grabbing the Gentiles by the cheeks, right, and saying, you really belong. Look at chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. It says this. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There, they will be called the sons of the living God. So, my first point today is this: God's Old Testament plan always included Jews and Gentiles. Always included Jews and Gentiles. Can I have my first little gospel slide up there? Um, let me let me tie into where this. So, by the way, the Good News Workshop we kind of work through this formatting so you, I could understand it more. But the flow of the gospel that we kind of moving moving from what is on your left to your right. <clears throat> Is who God is, right? God is the creator of all things. He makes us, mankind. We're designed to be in His image, but we fall below the line. All of us, all of humanity's fallen, broken, separated from God. This right here ties into that. This is from Old Testament and New Testament, how we're described in that fallen position. You weren't a people, you weren't beloved, you weren't His people. So He's tying in to something said even in the Old Testament that God was going to do something to the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, God referred to the Jewish people as his people. And all the other Gentiles, or literally the word nations, all the other nations were not his people. So much so that sometimes God would have his prophets have kids and give them names called lo amnon, meaning not my people, right? To communicate there's a difference between being one of God's people and not being one of God's people. So in, in the softness of us all, we all like to think that, oh, we're all God's children. Yes, we are God's creations. Yes, we are children of him as he is our, as our created father. But we are not, as we start the gospel, we are not his people. We are not his children. We are not okay. That's the opening salvo of the gospel. For a good little Jewish boy or a really old Gentile lady. Everyone is not, at a heart level, part of God's family, until something amazing happens. We can go back to our point here. God foretold us that He would move beyond the Jews, beyond the, the people of the Jews to include others. So remember if you're Gentile, and a Gentile is a person that's not an ethnic Jew question in their minds were, sitting over in Rome, like going like, ah, do we belong in this? Because we're Christians now. We're Roman people, but we're Christians. So that Christian guy, that's Christ, he was the Jewish Messiah. And Paul goes, you're right, he is the Jewish Messiah. So the question is, do we have rights then on that Jewish Messiah? And he goes, absolutely, you, you do. And this is nothing really just new to the New Testament. Back in the Old Testament, God was telling us all along that he was going to extend this. He says in verse 25, as he says to Hosea, Hosea is a prophet, he wrote a book called Hosea. Yeah, all right, it's good. Had a wife with an unfortunate name, Gomer. I would highly recommend to our mothers in our church, don't name your daughters Gomer. Um, says this in, in Hosea chapter two, verse twenty-three. Those who are not my people, Gentiles, I will call my people. So this is this is God expressing his 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 gathering nature. In the old testament, something he would be doing. Those who and her who is not beloved will be called beloved. So before this work, you're not beloved by God in a way that you are definitively, deeply, Romans 8, full, loved by God afterwards. Verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, Isaiah 1, chapter 10, they will be called sons of the living God. So, Israel at that time, that was in their mind, like we are the sons of the living God. But even the term sons was not a very common term. Jesus, when he's doing his ministry, um, if you remember right, one of my things, I'm just going to keep quoting until I die or or else you leave, is that when we think about one of the fundamental ways we think about ourselves as Christians is we listen to what Jesus says on how to pray. Right? Two times Jesus is asked how to pray and he says with very tricky words, pray like this. (laughs) Pray like this. And first thing you pray is what? Our Father. Not forgive my sins. Not I did something dirty. Not I need cash. Uh, First thing you pray, our Father. It establishes he is a father and you are a son or daughter and not the only one. Our. Right out of the gate. And I'm telling you, when those folks, those Jewish followers of Jesus right there would listen to that, that would not settle... Well, wow. that's an inappropriate thing to be saying to the father. But the father, back in the Old Testament, is forecasting, I'm a father. I'm going to have sons and daughters. And they aren't going to simply be Jewish. They're going to be people from all nations. Even Italians sitting in Rome. Even Scandies and Asians and South Americans all around the world. Australians. Like, I'm going to make people from all trung, tongues and tribes and nations, sons and daughters of the living God. And so not only did he say in the Old Testament that he would be including people beyond the Jews, but then he also goes to say that within the Jews there would be a coming problem. Romans verse 9, 27, in Isaiah chapter 10, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea. So that's, that's hot Jewish language as the sand of the sea, because time and time again in the promises that God made to the Jewish people through the fathers, Abraham and beyond, God describes his blessing will be so rich upon the Jewish people that they would have descendants so numerous, it's like sand on the seashore. So he's tying into to seashore language here. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. A remnant is a small group. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, God is saving. God is saving a remnant is critical because of how thoroughly He be judging the wicked nation at that time. And verse twenty nine. And as Isaiah in one nine predicted, if the Lord of Hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So those are two infamous cities in biblical history who were so wicked that God came down and judged them um, powerfully with volcanic force. So Sodom and Gomorrah forevermore, still to this day in our English language, bear the marks of wicked, two things, extreme wickedness, and number two, extreme judgment. And this prophet says in the Old Testament here, if it wasn't for God doing that work, that we, the claimed people of God, would be wiped out in the same way because God's people, the Jewish nation, had become so full of unbelief right then, except for this pile that he's protecting. He's like, they're like, fairly, fairly, we should be treated the exact same way. So Jewish and Gentile, all people of earth are invited ultimately to be legitimate, legal sons and daughters of God. It's always been God's plan, Old Testament and New Testament. So a careful listening. Now there's a difference between a scholar and a careful listening person. Like you could be a scholar who could translate Hebrew and Greek and not be a careful listener. And you could be a three-year-old hearing the words of Jesus and be a careful listener, even though you couldn't translate or would lose an argument to that scholar. A careful listener will come to realize in the Old Testament that they should be expecting the God of Jerusalem at some point to be kicking doors open to the world somehow. I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but he's going to go global on this. He's kicking the doors open to his people. So so the New Testament claim of full access to Africans and Australians and Russians and Iranians to the God of Jews is a genuine continuation of what he actually said to his people in the Old Testament. It's not new, it's just not a new out-of-the-box idea in the New Testament, it was forecast in the Old Testament. Probably for us, as New Testament believers, we might need to be a little more familiar with that than just passing particularly if God's brought us into connection with people of a Jewish heritage and background in our world, their rightful claims on the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament is a rightful thing. And we are also laying claims to that. So we should probably be in touch with, a little more vividly, why we are the legitimate sons and daughters of God and why we just didn't heist their dad out of their house. Okay? So probably good to kind of sit in some of these things and think about it a little bit and be understanding of it. So for us here in the room, though, you, my friends, my brothers and sisters who trust in Christ, you belong. The Father is telling you why you can take your shoes off and call him home. Why you must stand firm in your birthright alongside your Italian and Jewish brothers and sisters. You really belong. So God's word has not failed. He's been telling us all along that he is gathering a people, which includes Jews and non-Jews um, from all the nations. And you, Gentile or Jewish believer in Christ, you are fully adopted son or daughter of God, with full rights and privileges granted by your father, and don't tell him no. Right? He, that, that's where the gospel does something really funny, man. You all of a sudden fear God. Him you shall dread. That passage right read in the beginning. And then as you fear that one and listen to that one, he says, and I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Come in and call me Father My ear is bent toward you. My heart is towards you. It's an amazing thing. The the gospel is an amazing thing. It brings you to this amazing point of vulnerability. Then if you're really vulnerable, you're really listening, this amazing point of confidence that's greater than vulnerability. It's an amazing piece. Point number two, God, not morality, is the target. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness, sorry, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. Now, okay, okay, okay. If you're a little hesitant about diving into deep scripture study and you start to hear these things and then you start to like turn into fuzzy mode and drift, don't, don't. It's in there. Like God has been so gracious to, to pull your mind into deeper things, right? So like let's just lock into what he's saying. You can get it, you can get it. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So when he's saying Israel, he's talking about particularly unbelieving Israel. Not all Israelites, not all Jews, but the nation as a whole, we just saw them kick Jesus to the curb and kill him. Right? The nation as a whole kind of has an identity. And the nation as a whole, in this verse here, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and did not succeed in reaching the law. So just, just notice a couple things out of the text here. Verse 30, there's some pursuit. Verse 31, there's some pursuit. Verse 30, Gentiles are not pursuing a righteousness but a faith. Verse 31, the unbelieving Israelites, they are pursuing something they too are not really pursuing righteousness. Instead, they are pursuing a law. So faith in a law. So the Gentiles here, who are truly saved in this passage here, were not saved by a pursuit of righteousness, but by a pursuit, a proactive faith, in a belief in the promises of the promiser. That's what's captured the saved Gentiles' attention there. It's not just a vague faith. It's a faith in the things that God has said. And so their hearts, their eyes, their attention are pointed towards what God has said. They've heard what he said through Jesus. And they put their faith there. That's what they pursued. And when they did that, you know what they got? They got righteousness. They found righteousness in their bags, shall we say, as they looked to that promiser. Contrast that to verse 31. Unbelieving Israel, the overall Jewish people here who were not saved, they did not pursue the promiser, but rather pursued something else. They pursued the law. So if you're new to the game of Romans here, um, the obedience code of the Old Testament, particularly the obedience code of the Old Testament, is called the law. And it's, um, it's got a bunch of things that God did not want his Old Testament people to do. And a bunch of things that he wanted his Old Testament people to do and was characterized by when you should do them, how much you should do them, and whom you should do them to. Very, very codified. It's the written law. So unbelieving Israel started becoming fixated. Where'd the law come from? God, through Moses, particularly, right? So it's God's law. But they started becoming fixated on law instead of lawgiver, became their focus. The reason they're focusing on it is because they believe that if they accomplish that law, to some degree, it would provide sufficient safety and sufficient acceptance before God. That's not because God said that. That's because they quit listening to God and started focusing on something that belonged to God too much. So they started thinking the law would do something that the law would never was never intended to do. They were always invited to be saved by faith. And in the Old Testament, you'd be saved by faith, and then you'd figure out, okay, God, what do you want me to do? He goes, now look to the law and follow the obedience that I've set out in the law. That's, that's the way the law actually was designed in the Old Testament. But instead, they're not really listening to God. That's why I saying, like, hey, let's be careful. People to listening to what he's saying. They're not really listening to him, and so they just think, code. Uh, let's just pr- let's, let's pursue and accomplish a level of that code, and then we're good. Then we're a little bit better than them dirty Philistines next door. And we're definitely better than the Iraqis to the north of us. And much better than the Syrians above us. We have this lateral superiority. On a a lesser level, you know, he's calling us to a relationship. So instead of them looking to the law, um, God is calling them to look to him, to relationship with him. What is God offering us? He's not offering us a new code to live by. He is calling us into, he's calling us into him. Um, And in that relationship with him, yes, he will lead us into obedience. He clearly will. He wrote the New Testament particularly, right? Writes the New Testament. Um, If I want to characterize the difference between the Old Testament law, Mosaic Code, and the New Testament words of obedience, it would be this. Old Testament would tell you what not to do. Then it would tell you exactly what to do, when to do it, how much to do it, who to do it to. The New Testament, God clearly tells you things not to do still. Like, "Mm, don't kill, don't murder, don't lie. It's not saying, like, ha, take it down to, like, like a, a 10%. Like, don't. Like, the, the don'ts of the New Testament are clearly things that are against God's heart. He says, don't do that. But particu- particularly the do's of the New Testament. He tells us to love one another. And you know when he tells us to do it? He actually doesn't tell us w- when to do it. How much to do it? He doesn't tell us h- how much to do. To whom in what way? Those are all things that his spirit now in us as New Testament believers will guide us into the application of the dues. When, how much, to what extent. That's why it goes over everything, including like when we talk tithing, we say tithing, but we don't mean 10%. We're talking about a spirit-led, crafted, formed, conviction in you of what he wants you to give regularly. Could be 10%. We like it when it's like 80, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but really, the spirit leads us forward. How in the world should I love Matt ria know by jerky okay that's that's a game changer ob, a basic thing in manhood relationships jerky works but outside of that like what else can i do i don't know he drives an hour that way to work drives an hour back i don't know but i learned to love my brother when i pray for him and say god lead me i know god you've told me to love him as you've loved us and you teach me about by, by your spirit how to do this so i i pray like lord how do you how do you want me to love him um God doesn't say, all right, that every brother in your fellowship, you're going to do this, you're going to text him twice, <coughs> call him once, pray for him every day and do these kind of things. Really, we're going to put ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, how do you want me to love Nathan? What do you what do you want me to do for him? How can I care for him? Those kind of things. So, we are now spirit-led people. Of course, in the New Testament, God has told us things that he does not want, things that grieve his heart. Those are not asking us to reduce such things. Those are calling us to repent and flee from such things, but particularly the forward obedience of what he wants us to do, it's shaped in the scripture and will be applied specifically as we seek the Spirit's leading in our life. So on a lesser level here, People all around God, and let's just, just get into the room here. I know that most of us aren't are like <coughs> waking up this morning and, and like just like, man, that Old Testament law. I love that. Let me just fixate on that. So let me just break this down into a little more New Testament in your life. Um, people around God will always be tempted to get distracted with God's stuff. The law was God's stuff. They looked at the law instead of the lawgiver. So we're going to still do the same thing, and you probably do it this morning to some degree or another. Uh, we love his stuff. We love ministries, we love music, we love worship, vibe, also known as bass in fog. Um, we, We even love things like we can love the scriptures without loving the speaker of the scriptures. Like we can be excited about coherent, systematic theology and really getting it. We can be excited about our favorite speaker that we love listening to without loving the one he's speaking about, without loving the theology of the one. So we have a tendency to really do this. We start to love stuff, even God's true things more than Him, um, as they're rightly connected and flowing from Him. So, the, so my fair question for you guys for a moment is this, my fellow Christians What are the things of God that you over pursue or over fixating on rather than God Himself? How, how then will you keep those things rightly attached to and flowing out of God? Uh, music is fantastic. Um, really good books, those are really wonderful ministries are fantastic that God's given us, but how will you keep that? Ideally, you've loved that because it came out of God. Now, some of us pragmatists, I'll throw myself in this bucket, a lot of times we actually learn to love the things of God before we love God. A number of us in this room have found things that we now love of God because we love God first and we saw them flowing out of God and we're like, oh, that's amazing. So certain ministry pieces I loved before I actually loved them because they flowed out of God. Music pieces for me, singing to the Lord, um, and fellowship, those things I loved after I saw them in the Lord. And then I trusted the Lord and stepped into them and found that they are amazing and good. So you can come two different ways into this, but no matter which way you come up through pragmatism or come down through worship to God's stuff, how will you, do you know what it is of God's stuff that you tend to like more than him sometimes? And How will you keep it connected to the giver? I'm not asking you like to start hating the music that you love. And if you love a smoke machine and a strong subwoofer, it's cool. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, but how will, you, how will you rightly keep that ordered and connected and flowing out of the Lord and not loving God's stuff more than loving God? It's just a question for you. Maybe we want to discuss with some fellowship later. So God must always be our aim, not his tools, ministries, mission, or even his word. Careful with that one not even his word. Can you love God's word more than you love God? Absolutely you can. And thousands of souls do it. When you love God's word without loving God, without loving his word because it comes from God, it will turn you into like a plump, overfed, spiritual tick. Just like uh, just a, a pompous, insensitive person that is unable to, to, to navigate and move around in the life of love and of mission, um, You'll just be immobilized by it. So, yeah. All right, third point. Um, Christ is surprisingly offensive. Christ is surprisingly offensive, and I p- apologize if my plump, overfed tick was offensive to you, but it might be you. You might be rolling around on your spiritual back, you know, and you just can't do anything because you love God's word more you love God. So let's push it from these things up to the giver of these things. So our third piece is this. Christ is surprisingly offensive. So can I have my gospel slide back one more time? Thanks, Jess. Um, just to kind of follow along where we're at, I told you guys the fall was really the first part of our, our piece here, where you're not my people, but now you can be my people. So we were, we were so separated from God, and he, and he meant it, right? The second piece of what had happened was largely a misunderstanding of the offer piece. The offer of what's offered to us, fallen people, is the new relationship with him, where we'd be under the, the kingship of Jesus and where Jesus would be our treasure. This is the new proposition. But they had slipped off of that in the Old Testament. The offer was to them was like, oh, moral superiority, moral acceptability, maybe support superiority of other nations, those kind of things. It has shifted instead of being under God and under his love and care is a shift of that. Our third piece of this is moving into the payment category. What's interesting is, is this is Christ is surprisingly offensive. And I would tell you there's two reasons why. In the Bible, and in Columbus, Christ's offensive. Number one, well, three. Number one, we don't like it when Jesus says we're as bad as we are. That, that illumination sometimes for, for us when we see it, will do one of two things. It will liberate us. We're like, finally, I, I see what's wrong with me the whole time. Or it will hack you off. Um, it will do one of those two things. It will illuminate or hack you off. The second reason it will Christ will greatly offend us is his kingship. I mean, who likes to be under control? Who likes to have a king? Clay pots in the beginning of this chapter—they don't like to admit that they have a potter. They don't want to. They don't want to admit they flow from a potter. They don't want to have an owner. In fact, our, most of our scientific world right now is caught up in the efforts to show how it's a pot without a potter. Only it's a way harder argument when we're talking eyeballs without a creator and synapses and photosynthesis and heavenly bodies circling around and intestines and all those kind of things. Um, far harder to argue about those not having a creator than a pot not having a creator. So we like to reject his authority over us because we don't like him having authority on us. But particularly at the, end of this, at the end of this chapter here, it's not the authority of Jesus that's the problem. It's the saving of Jesus that's the problem. So take a look in verse 32 and 33. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written, Isaiah 8. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is prophetic language about who Jesus would be. Confirmed in the New Testament, this is Jesus. Jesus is called the cornerstone, the one that everything's built on. Or, that stone gets in the way. It's the stone that makes you stumble. It's what you trips you hit your shins on. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's who Jesus is. Jesus enters the world and he says, "Hey, you're broken. You're dead. You're separated. You're not my people. You're alienated from me. You're you're spiritually naked, destitute. You're children of Satan." And that message either sits really well with us in the end, really well with us, liberating well with us, or else, man, that really bugs us. How dare you say to me that I'm a sinner? Think of of Jesus' words in John chapter 8 when he's talking with, uh, having a showdown with the leaders of Israel who were unbelieving Jewish people as leaders. And they said, we have a father, Abraham's father. And he goes, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus says, "Um, no, no, he's not your father. And 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 Jesus then says, actually, Satan is your father. Fairly offensive words one could say, right? Especially when you are a religious leader, because when Jesus comes and proclaims to the world that we are under the power of the dark one, children of Satan, that we ourselves are dark, that's going to do one of the things two things. It's going to highly offend you, or it's going to, in the end, highly liberate you. Jesus comes and saving is saving us from something, something so bad so low, something so incredibly incapable of us fixing ourselves that as he describes the cancer of our hearts um, that only he can fix and that not only could only Jesus fix it but Jesus had to do something pretty amazing himself that you also can't do so you couldn't fix it nor can you do the things that he did to fix it. What did he do? He came and lived a sinless life. Number one. Never messed it up once, and you already did in this sermon. So did I. Probably, I'm not sure where, but, but we do, we mess it up all the time. So Jesus, number one, does something. He lives it perfectly. Number two, Jesus dies an innocent death to give a death penalty fulfillment to something we have, which is a death penalty. Number three, third thing that you will not be doing on your own is resurrecting from the dead. So Jesus himself had to live perfectly, had to die, had to rise again. That bundle of amazing things had to be done in order for his saving work to have effect on us. That's how bad the Scott Burns situation was. That's how bad the Gavin situation was. That's how bad your situation is, and that's how bad the situation of all of humanity is. So Jesus describes clearly the horrible situation to which his even more amazing salvation comes. And in the end, he ends up being something really amazing, something that is your rock and your refuge and your fortress and the foundation of your life, or else someone who totally gets in your way. So my my questions for you with this, my friend, is, if if you don't know the Lord... You just got to be really careful. If Jesus, if Jesus is anything but life and hope to you, if he gets in the way of, of your plans for your life, if he gets in, the, gets in the way of you feeling good about yourself, don't stay there. If you find Jesus to be a stumbling block to your way, your way is wrong. Your way is wrong. That's, that's what he, it's called repentance. Repentance is that exiting out of the natural way where Jesus gets in our way, and Jesus offends us by the things he says about how it's wrong, and then Jesus actually offends us as he saves us. As he lays down his life and extends it open to us, we get offended at the sweetest love that's ever been on this planet. It's amazing. So if you don't know him, I would encourage you, please, trust in Jesus. Don't stay in a way where you find Jesus annoying, stumbling, and offensive to you. If you do know Jesus... I'd encourage you to rest him. Look at how the end of verse 30, 33 ends. Behold, I'm laying in Zion, that's Israel, a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever, how, do you get, how do you get access to Jesus? Jesus' work is not universally applied and smeared over all of humanity. It is applied specifically to people who have heard his call and respond to him in faith. They believe what he says. He says next week, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how you know him. And what it says here is that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So believe in him doesn't just mean you believe that he was a historical figure or that he's the granddaddy of Christianity or that he did some miracles. To believe in him is to believe in all who he says he is, that he is the eternal God who also became man, the hypostatic union, you want more on that later on? He is fully God. He is fully man. Actually, uh, this week, John will be teaching us in Learning Week uh, on the Trinity. Um, and so, so we will be learning about that. Give us a hypostatic union, right? So we believe. To believe in Jesus means that we actually listen to what he says about himself, who he is, and all that he does. That's what it means to believe in him. The New Testament, if you don't believe me, just read through some of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and watch how many people were halfway listening, halfway believing in him. They liked the miracles. They liked the free fish and bread. And they liked seeing some guy like pop up out of the grave. And they liked, who doesn't like to see an arm grow back or like a demon fly across the sky out of somebody? People loved all that stuff. And Jesus was talking about forgiveness. They love pieces and portions of it, but they're not believing in him. They line up underneath him and say, I'll take everything you say. You are the king. So whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is not talking about being ashamed. It's not talking about being personally ashamed. So when you say I'm ashamed, ashamed, ashamed for us, means when you fail, to, you fail at your own test to yourself. That's ashamed. Ultimately, I fail to myself. This is shame. This is different. This is actually before the true judge And before the true test, which is God himself. Remember, the the gaze has been taken off, of the low stuff here, up onto God. And God says, whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. You will have honor as a daughter of God. You will have honor as a son of God. Everyone in your world may think you're an idiot. You will have honor, and it will come from God himself. So the solution to it all is this, is to listen to him, really listen to him, and believe him. And if you believe him, you will find that you have been made righteous before God, because only God can give you that righteousness. If you use any other means to try to accrue that righteousness, you will not. Human merit will never be righteousness before God. I know it's frustrating. I know if you're outside of that, you're like, that's not fair. It actually is, but I understand why it's frustrating. But quit trying to merit up to yourself as the judge or your mom or supposedly God because God says, I am the judge and human merit doesn't count in my court. You don't have it but there's really amazing good news. Jesus does have that merit. He accrued that merit in a way that he could give it and give it fully and the way you get it is to put your faith in Jesus Christ to trust him. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, my friend, don't know him? Run to Jesus. All you do is stop in your tracks and say, Jesus, i I believe you. I, I leave my way. I leave dark. I forsake it. I want you. I re- I've heard that you lived and died, and rose again, and I want that applied to me. And brothers, sisters, the guys that know the Lord here, stand in that. Don't let the good things of God distract you. Look past them to the Giver of the good things. Rest in Him. Resting in our identity in Jesus. And knowing him and believing freshly his word and understanding it more and more as we go on because you are a genuine and beloved son or daughter of God no matter where you come from if you put your faith in him. At this time, Wes is going to come up and he's going to lead us through prayer in response to this.